Hello, this is Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, here with Andy Pitcher Davis, the art editor of Dialogue. Hey, Taylor, thank you for having me again. It's so interesting, this section of our history. I can't wait to dive in. Me too. This is episode six of Dialogue Heritage, a podcast series exploring the history of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, through the lens of LDS history, American history, and academic history. Each week, we discuss the, the five-year period of the journal's history, from the founding of, in 1966 up until today. This week, we're discussing 1990 to 1994, and boy, there is a lot in this section, if you're not familiar. So much to unpack, and we will get to a tenth of it. Let me just add, Taylor, this show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts, and culture. You can listen to this podcast and all of the Dialogue Podcast Network shows on a new podcast app called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover and listen to great educational audio. In Lyceum, you can also support the Dialogue Podcast Network by becoming a member for just $5 a month. Members will get an exclusive episode and the chance to discuss and engage the show with me and Taylor and other listeners. So go to the App Store or Google Play, download Lyceum and become a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network today. That's Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M. So let's kind of just catch up to where we're at in this history. We're still in the beginning of the 1990s in the era of the editors Ross and Mary Kay Peterson in 1990. They take over for uh, a few years before and relocated Dialogue from Salt Lake City to their home in Logan, Utah. This changes in the spring of 1993 when we get Martha Sontag Bradley and Alan Dale Roberts as editors. Their first issue has a controversial Trevor Southie image on the cover, and we're going to discuss that. But Dialogue moves back to uh, Salt Lake County. And they also raise the price from $25 to $30 a year for the subscription. Which is such a bargain. I can't believe how much they get out of $20 or $30 a year. They were still way below, as they note in their announcement, way below most other journals. And uh, even today, we are way underpriced relative to a lot of other journals out there. So what's going on in the world? We like to set the larger context here. And I want to note many significant events that go down in the 1990s. If you are older and, and remember these dates, this will be a good trip down memory lane. If you're younger and you don't know any of this stuff, this is a, a useful background here. Um, of course, we have Desert Storm under George Bush Sr., and uh, there's some discussion about, about these events in the letters to the editor and a few other places in the journal itself. Eugene England, the founder of the journal, was a pacifist and objected to the war in a letter that he wrote to Dialogue, and there were a bunch of responses then in the following issues. You know, I think, Taylor, let me just jump on real quick and just let you know a little bit of the history as to why I think what built up to Gene's feelings on war. It comes from a personal place. He and Charlotte met actually in high school. They married during the Korean War conflict. Charlotte and Gene served a mission together as married people in America, Samoa, had a daughter in Hawaii. Gene, during the Korean War, this was during the Korean War, and many people may not know this, but Gene attended MIT and had a degree in meteorology and was part of the Air Force. 
One of the things that Jean and Charlotte went on to do before they studied at Stanford and moved on to La Jolla University in Minnesota is that they were um, stationed, and this is very interesting, it's so important to understand as to why he feels so strongly about this. Jean was part of the Air Force, yet he was colorblind. He was red, green, colorblind, and so he couldn't be a pilot. He trained as a meteorologist, and then he was stationed at Victorville, California. And in maybe, I'm going to say 1960 or so, Gene and Charlotte were there and Gene would fly, uh, he would fly over test sites of nuclear missile sort of test sites and do the meteorology for the flights and for the missiles that were going to, for the, for, for the missiles that were going to go off later. And during that time, they had uh, several children they had Rebecca and they had Jennifer. There were a lot of complications with these kids and, and, and infertility and these other things. And, and in many ways, I'm going to just put out there that Gene in many ways was more than a downwinder. He was over the actual sites. And, you know, of course, Gene passed away of brain tumors quite young. And I can't, I'm not going to, to connect those two things but one of the reasons why Gene was so adamant about put, laying down and bearing your weapons of war is because he saw them firsthand, he flew over them. And that's a history that people need to understand. And at that point, he left the military and decided to pursue English at, at Stanford University and then went on to start dialogue there. So that's just something that people should understand about why this is such an authentic argument with him. I had no idea. Thank you so much for giving that background. I didn't know the the direct connection that he had with these issues. Of course, there is a, a strong LDS pacifist intellectual tradition. It doesn't seem to often, uh, unfortunately, get much beyond that. But of course, we have Patrick Mason today as perhaps the most outspoken LDS intellectual that's a, that's also a pacifist. And we have uh, uh, here then then sort of a record of the ways in which this intellectual tradition that that England. Uh, uh, founds, of course, and, and continues to represent, um, at this point, nearly 25 years after the, the beginning of the journal, um, these deep-seated feelings. And, and I had no idea about the personal background. So thanks so well, much for shedding light on that. And I actually think that his, um, his trauma and his experience with this is something that has really influenced how we act. And right now we're at a time of conflict and we want to know, do we engage or do we not engage? And so, so I want to acknowledge that conflict that we've been taught to stand to, to really be people of peace. Yet we're at a time where activism and showing up and he engaged very much in many rallies and protests against war. There is a letter and I will link it in the comments, a uh, letter to the editor where he speaks specifically to the Gulf War. And I don't want to spend a lot of time there because we have lots to speak to. But I think if we're wondering why a little bit right now, we're, we are curious as to why it's difficult for us to engage in the activism and, and the protest a little bit, and even somewhat the necessary violence, it could be coming from this other place. Yeah, we are recording this at the time of a lot of unrest after the death of George Floyd, and we are going to speak to some issues that go back to the 90s uh, relative to racism that we want to highlight here. But uh, but yeah, these are very much the issues that are on our mind as we are looking at all of this. 
Um, besides the Gulf War, there's lots of other things that are happening on. We have the, we have the fall of communism. Uh, we have the end of the Soviet Union during this period. We have the election of Bill Clinton, the first Democratic uh, president after a 12-year period. And it seemed like a return of a lot of progressive values that had been shut out for the past decade plus in American politics. And it seemed like a time to be challenging authoritarianism as well with the fall of, uh, of communism and so forth, too. We also have in 1993, a Hawaii Supreme Court decision that sort of is lurking in the background here, but it's going to become more relevant in the uh, coming um, in the coming years uh, where the Supreme Court legalizes same-sex marriage. It doesn't quite put it into effect yet. It has a stay on its decision. And it's eventually overturned by a popular constitutional amendment uh, that the LDS church was heavily involved in. And so this is really the beginning of a 20-year political fight for the church. It's the prelude to the proclamation on the family. And we'll talk about these issues in the next episode. But I just want to kind of pay attention to what's sort of bubbling in the background here. You know, another Um, thing I just want to bring up you have to remember, this is a time of transparency. This is the beginning of the internet. These facts and these issues and these essays are shared widely for the first time. And I think that the transparency of the conflict that we're going to go into in this session, in this, in this podcast is something that is new to those who are not familiar with the technology of the internet. The internet is a really fascinating period. Uh, you know, right right at the beginnings here, we're seeing email kind of coming into play, and and we're still a little bit before it uh, becomes really mainstream. But they're advertising things like the beginning of Mormon list serves Mormon L uh, in uh, in one of the early episode or issues of dialogue here. Uh, and so, yeah, there's just this whole new way that Latter-day Saint intellectuals are able to connect with each other and keep up in real time, which is, again, going to sort of disrupt dialogue, because instead of writing to letters to the editor here, you can write an email that everybody can read immediately, you know. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, yeah so, so the Internet is really going to start to change things. And you see the way the Internet fights actually bleed into the pages of dialogue on occasion, too. Absolutely. So what else is going on in the church? Well, President Benson is winding down and is largely incapacitated for the final years of his presidency here. Um, President Hunter succeeds him for the shortest presidency in LDS history of only nine months. So the first part of the 1990s is really not a strong president of the church um, who's who's fully capable of of leading the church. Um, We also have uh, some turmoil in the lower uh, ranks of the church. In 1989, you remember George P. Lee is excommunicated. In 1992, Elder Paul H. Dunn was exposed as having fabricated some of his faith-promoting stories. And he'd been a friend to many liberals in the church who felt especially betrayed by, by this. So we're starting to see some you know, some turmoil at these top levels here where there's some falling out of some of these folks that at least some people perceived as being um, favorable to or towards uh, liberal causes. Well, and right off the, off the bat, Taylor, in 1990, it's the very first issue, uh, spring 1990, the first thing you do when you open an issue is you see a letter to the editor that speaks to George, to George P. Lee. And he talks about racism and he talks about how within our culture, our main minority is the Lamanite generation. And somebody writes a letter that says, how unfortunate that we're no longer having this voice that speaks to the marginalized. And of course, he goes on to say, to lament that says, if there's a sin, then that is something else. And I can't speak to that. But the man who writes the letter is named Eduardo Pagan. 
from Princeton, New Jersey, and he's a person of color. And he's like, I, I feel like this letter just says, he says, how courageous Elder Lee was and how unfortunate it was for all of us that he chose to remove himself. And there again, I think we may see a lot of this where people were hoping to have a connection to those that were participating and they had to remove themselves for one reason or another. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, George P. Lee is convicted a couple of years after all of this of child molestation, uh, a really tragic uh, episode, you know. Absolutely awful. Yeah. Uh, but but in these are before that uh, conviction came down, you know, uh, and we see in the pages of dialogue, there were a lot of people who suspected publicly and in part because Lee had, had put this story out himself, that he was um, removed from his office for challenging racism in the church. That's so and, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he had leaked some communication that he had had with Ezra Taft Benson, uh, where he was challenging that and, and sort of tried to tell that narrative as, as the argument. Yeah. Uh, BYU is beginning battles with the American Academy of University professors who will eventually censor, censure the school for restrictions on academic freedom in 1997 and 1998, but it dates back to episodes happening in the early 90s here, um, including new policies for faculty in the early 90s that limited their academic freedoms and required more rigorous ecclesiastical endorsements. This included targeting faculty uh, Cecilia Conchar Farr in 1993, David Knowlton, and uh, uh, the more uh, pressing case in 1996, the denial of tenure to Gail Houston. Um, Two of these faculty were in English, one in sociology, uh, and there was a real suspicion of, quote unquote, feminists and liberals at uh, BYU and an attempt to oust them. We also have new feminist scholarship that's coming to fruition. Paul and Margaret Toscano's Strangers in Paradise and Maxine Hanks's uh, Women and Authority are are two landmark feminist texts that come out in the early 90s. And uh, in April 1991, uh, we have growing conflict and concerns about Heavenly Mother when um, Gordon B. Hinckley warns against praying to Heavenly Mother. Uh, This is on top of a series of other statements that targeted uh, mostly Sunstone and other symposia. Um, and if dialogue had been a problem in the in the 80s, Sunstone was the problem in the early 90s for uh, <laughs> church leaders. And uh, dialogue was about to get into the fight, though. Um, they weren't the only one. Um, no. Yeah, there, there are other organizations. The Mormon Women's Forum is founded in 1988, uh, a Mormon feminist organization. The B.H. Roberts Society and other social, social organizations are proliferating during this period. And we're also about to learn about the strengthening the church members committee for the first mm. time in the 1990s, um, which had been operating uh, in in uh, quietly in the background and, and uh, became public in the 1990s and, and uh, was a huge concern for a lot of people. So uh, kind of fascinating to sort of set the stage for some of the issues that we want to unpack. Um, but you had called my attention to a couple of issue, a couple of articles in the spring 1990, right at the right at the start here. And we did mention these a little bit in the last episode, but they seem even more pressing today uh, as they are dealing with the history of race and some of the contemporary issues about race in the church. Do you want to just? Uh, uh, I do. Call our attention to those. Well, one, I just want to, I just because I'm the art person. The cover is by Doug Himes, who is the same person who did our cover for this last fall issue. So that's a shout out. Wow. And his work is just really lovely. It's very, it's it's an abstract. It's lots of abstract work. I I've always thought that our our beliefs are abstract, and so our instructions on how to follow them should be abstract as well. 
So I read this and I'm coming at this. I don't know that I'm the perfect person to speak to this, but I read this and it's, and it felt to me that the essay is by Jesse Embry and it's called separate, but equal question mark, black branches, Genesis groups, or integrated wards. And my first and question mark, my first, my first feeling was like, great. Here is a record of those that are black saints among us and, and the wards and branches that they made for themselves, the, the spaces they carved out for themselves. Now, as I read this, I realized that they had to carve it out for themselves because we weren't doing it for them. Meaning it felt very much like a commodity. We're doing a count, a number, who is where, who is going into the inner city places to create a new sort of branch presidency, whether it's better or not better that they are integrated or separate. Integration is a question of the 60s. And here we are in 1990. And what we do is we say, if you do not feel, I am going to be overt in this. And I'm just going to say that, that the fact that we were not, we were not uh, making the gospel accessible, but also really facilitating their belief and, and just entirely their equality is on us. Meaning we said to them, if you cannot number yourselves with us, you are welcome to go over there. And I have seen beautiful, amazing things come out of Genesis. I think the essay is important because it really does. It's one of the few lenses we do put on those who created these branches and wards. But I cannot say that it is something that we should be proud of. And I might just sort of leave it there and just say we have a deep responsibility to look at this essay, acknowledge the work that's been done, but do much better. That's a great way to put it. And and thank you so much for raising it and for calling our attention to it. It's, a, it's an incredibly timely legacy as we are um, called to really think about the, the history, not only of our country, but of the church and, and the legacies that we are still dealing with that um, have not led to the promises and the expectations uh, of equality that uh, we'd hoped for. So um, thank you so much for, for calling our attention to it. Absolutely. There's one other thing I want to put, pick up, uh, point out in this issue, and it's actually a review in the very back. Um, it's by Helen Cannon, and it is called "Walking on the Dark Side." And I don't, I don't want to delve in deeply, but it is a book of fiction that's based on a true story, and it sets up some what's going to happen within feminism down the road. And the story is, it's called um, "Doc: The Rape of a, of the Town of Lovell" by Jack Olson. And what it is, is the story of a doctor who was an OBGYN and there's systemic sort of sexual abuse that happens within this Mormon town by this non-Mormon doctor. And it is silenced for maybe 10 to 20 years. The reason why I bring this up is because eventually we're going to get to, we're going to get to this point where we talk a lot about people bringing up, uh, they're going to bring up more sort of domestic violence and these other difficulties that were silenced for many years. And this shows that maybe our twin barbarisms within Mormonism and feminism are our obedience and loyalty to our community. And, and that's something where women are afraid to speak about their own ex experience. 
I hadn't read that one. So again, thank you for for catching some of these things that I might have overlooked. These are these are great. I want to dive in to perhaps the major story from this time period uh, of conflicts between feminist intellectuals and the church itself. Um, it seems as if the past two episodes have kind of been setting up the background to this conflict. And we've learned a lot in seeing how the optimism from the 60s and 70s of a vibrant and cooperative intellectual tradition found itself on the wrong side of some church leaders in the 1980s because of different visions about values and truth. From Sonia Johnson's feminism to the historian's warts and all approach, uh, these uh, these approaches were not always welcome uh, for, for church leaders. Um, you'll recall that in 1989, we discussed in the last episode a sermon that Elder Oaks gives warning against what he called alternative voices, which was kind of capping off nearly a decade of conflicts with historians. And uh, in, in the 90, early 90s continues these conflicts. In uh, On August 23rd, 1991, the church condemns a paper that was given at the Sunstone Symposium by non-Mormon scholar Colleen McDaniel, titled mm -hmm. LDS Garments, A View from the Outside. Wow. Now, uh, McDaniel is today one of the most important scholars working in religion. I mean, she is, uh, uh, this is my primary field, and she is a goddess of the field. Numerous field-defining books. Uh, her, her resume is incredible, and she happens to teach at the University of Utah, and kind of Mormonism came into her orbit of research. Wow. She actually stepped away from LDS studies for years after that run-in with church leaders, but she recently wrote Sister Saints in 2019, maybe 18, mm -hmm. uh, that won numerous historical awards, A History of LDS Women. Um, David Knowlton also gave a paper at that conference on South American uh, terrorism against LDS missionaries that freaked out a bunch of families, uh, and he was called into his stake president over his remarks. So the August 23rd statement, 1991, what does it say? Recent symposia sponsored and attended by some members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have included some presentations relating to the house of the Lord, the holy temples, that are offensive. We deplore the bad taste and insensitivity of these public discussions of things we hold sacred. We are especially saddened at the participation of our own members. Which, can I just jump in quickly and just, as we d dive into this, the personality of David Knowlton and these other scholars we're going to talk about that come into conflict with the church, Levina... Fielding Anderson and, and Janice Allred, these are some faith-affirming, good, like, pastoral people. And I think that's important just to sort of mention. These, yeah, these were not, in, in no. most cases, in most cases, these were not people who were trying to stir up trouble. They uh -huh. were trying to be good scholars and good members. David Nolt was at BYU at the time, you know. Uh, anyway, but this this uh, statement condemning symposia and condemning the participation not only of members but other church leaders and of course BYU faculty and, and so on was uh, went over like a lead balloon in, in LDS intellectual circles. Yeah. And the Salt Lake Tribune, Lowell Bennion, who was a famous University of Utah uh, a professor and, and figure, we are asked to love the Lord with all our hearts and minds. It is a poor religion that can't stand the test of thinking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the October General Conference, a few months after this, 
um, continued to sort of press on these themes. Boyd K. Packer said, recently, the Council of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles issued, Apostles issued a statement alerting members of the church to the dangers of participating in symposia, which concentrate on doctrines, ordinances, and measures them by the intellect alone. If doctrines and behavior are measured by intellect alone, the essential spiritual ingredient is missing and we will be misled. There is safety in learning doctrines and gatherings which are sponsored by proper authority. So to put this in context, it's not only challenging members and going to talk about these things, but it was also challenging non-members. Remember, Colleen McDaniel is not a Mormon. Her <laughs> remarks are explicitly titled An Outsider's Perspective. Um, and so it was also regulating learning from non-Mormons about uh, 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 the, these things as well. So... Um, the spring 1992 issue of Dialogue, tons of letters to the editor condemning mm -hmm. the church's statement, uh, warning that this is censorship by intimidation. And this leads us up to the issue that I really want to dive into a lot, spring 1993. Perhaps the most controversial issue Dialogue has ever published. And I want you to start by the cover art and interior art. Tell us so, a little bit about that because that itself was controversial. The content is one thing, but the art also was, was controversial. So give us a story. There, there are a couple of covers I really do want to want to address. And one of them is, one of them is, is spring 1993. The other one, eventually I might hop back and just talk a little bit about spring 1991 because of similar artists. This is a cover by South African born artist, Trevor Salvi who was a gem of a human. He was an incredible draftsman. His artwork and his uh, figurative drawing and painting is maybe the best I've seen within Mormonism. And, I, and, and legitimately. There is actually Trevor, uh, he, and this piece is super important. He uh, joined the church in South Africa, moved to, to Utah, was a faculty at BYU, married, his wife, Elaine, had four children. He painted like this. Now, this is something that's very interesting. Trevor eventually became, like Trevor eventually uh, came out as homosexual uh, and left the church. Now, this is something about this cover. The cover is, I will be frank, it's as homoerotic as it gets. It's called Prodigy. And it is two men together, actually a third next to them. And we came under a lot of scrutiny for putting this on the cover. And not only if it's a great cover, it folds out. Like it's, I want all of nude our... men. We should we it's should specify it's nude men. Yeah. It's nude men. At the same time, he was painting massive, huge canvases for the Salt Lake Airport that vaguely descripted uh, nude women and men, and they were removed from the airport. It was censored. Now Trevor was painting. After uh, after he kind of left BYU, he made an entire chapel like Chagall in Montana, like stained glass, sculptures. This is a massive, massive artist for Mormonism. He never really turned his back on Mormonism. Let me tell you the most important thing about this work of art, Taylor, and it's, and it's super significant. Prodigal Son was created, and there again, this is one of the, my main pieces where this affirms both a LGBTQ identity and Mormonism or, or religiosity within my faith. 
And that's important because this piece was created actually in 1974. Trevor does not come out as gay until 82. He doesn't leave the church until 85 and he's excommunicated. He moves to San Francisco. Uh, he goes, he paints in between San Francisco and Utah. His adult children say very close friends with him his whole life. I had the pleasure of knowing Trevor and his family, just the most lovely humans on the face of the planet. And there again, I can't speak enough to how important this painting is. And also another painting by Randall Lake on spring 1991, who had a similar story. Mm. So that's a, that's a big setup that his, he is painting his truth, maybe what, eight years prior that that he can feel like he can speak his truth. Mm. And that's significant to me. And I think that there again, it sets the stage for so much truth telling within this issue. This is the first issue that the new editors were uh, taking charge of. And boy, it was uh, a doozy. Um, <laughs> I, wanna, I wanna read a few uh, letters that, that discuss this. Now, I think of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, and ask, why do the editors choose 12 pages of nudes to dominate the spring 1993 issue? It seems as inappropriate to me as putting King Benjamin's speech to his people from the tower in Playboy magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and, we took, and we also took heat for the Randall Lake cover as well. Interesting. You know? <laughs> so, so there again, I'm glad we are the thorn in the side. Proud so, as uh, as controversial as the content was, uh, the art really did, and which yep. we'll get in. We're going to get into the content here, but but here's how the the editors responded. Um, the spring 1993 issue of Dialogue has elicited considerable commentary, some favorable, some not. To date, most of the discussion has centered on the cover art, Trevor Southey's triptych Prodigal. The response to Prodigal clearly shows that Dialogue's readership is diverse, as we hoped it would be. Reactions have ranged from positive and supportive to negative and angry. We did not intend to be provocative, nor did we expect that some readers would not look beyond the cover. Apparently, we overestimated the maxim, you can't judge a book by its cover, since a few <laughs> readers seem to have done just that. <laughs> I don't know. I think the art is actually that good. I mean, this is one of the most significant covers. You should know that Trevor donated several prints of Prodigal Son to the journal to sell and we came under so much scrutiny for having this that they were never able to be made into a fundraising effort i have several mm. of them at my house wow so people can <laughs> contact me because they were far too they were far too controversial in this way mm. byu I, i'm going to toss in what's something that's very interesting i had a conversation with the director of the byu museum of art and Trevor may be the first artist that they consider to have nude art within, within their institution. Wow. And that's significant. So let's move past the cover instead of just judging it by its cover. Yeah. Let's get into to what's going on and why this issue is so controversial. And in order to do that, I want to focus on one of the main topics that they were dealing with, which was the term that, that uh, many of the, the scholars who are writing in this era were starting to call spiritual abuse and describing the troubles that had been going on in the 80s, which they traced back even further uh, to earlier periods as well between LDS feminist intellectuals and church leaders. 
Um, and the, the origins of what comes out in the spring 1993 issue go back to the summer before that, to July 1992, when Paul Toscano founds the Mormon Alliance, which was founded to document and counter, quote, spiritual and ecclesiastical abuse and identifying and documenting various instances of this. Janice Allred, who was uh, Paul's sister-in-law, and Levina Fielding Anderson were founding board members and the head of the Case Reports Committee. Uh, so they publish this um, issue, uh, or they publish in, in this first issue the, that uh, Martha Sontag Bradley and Alan Dale Roberts take over, um, the LDS Intellectual Community and Church Leadership, a Contemporary Chronology. Interesting. This is the thing that's going to get Levina Fielding Anderson excommunicated, as probably with uh, Paul Toscano's uh, uh, contributing to, to that as well, since he was a founder of, of this particular organization. This is a 60-page article. It, um, here's what it says. Here's just a couple of quotes from it. The clash between obedience to ecclesiastical authority and the integrity of individual conscience is certainly not one upon which Mormonism has a monopoly. But the past two decades have seen accelerating tensions in the relationship between the institutional church and the two overlapping sub-communities I claim, intellectuals and feminists. Yep. It was really about then historians and feminists, and she acknowledges that scientists and others might also have their stories. But the issue with the new Mormon history movement and the various feminists during the ERA and beyond needed airing, according to uh, this, uh, this account. And Levina belonged to both communities and wanted to kind of tell these stories. She continues, I'm doing it because I feel I must. After the yep. joint statement of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve issued in August 1991, I wanted to understand and accept. I spent the fall and the winter carefully rereading the Book of Mormon, paying particular attention to passages about pride, rebelliousness, and disobedience. I prayed. I fasted, went to the temple, performed my callings with new exactness, and was newly attentive in meetings. From the bottom of my heart, I wanted to avoid self-deception or intellectual pride. I received the calling of a witness in the household of faith as the uh, argument for after gone, going through all of this, she decides that she needs to go forward with this work. The article discusses conflicts from 1972 to 1992. It takes people through the beginning and the end of the Arrington's, Leonard, Leonard Arrington stint as church historian and his exile afterward. It documents many episodes of intimidation of historians, quotes letters from general authorities attacking in general and specifically certain historians for airing unflattering history of church leaders. It goes over the church's efforts to disrupt the International Women's Year Conference in 1977. It discusses Sonia Johnson's excommunication. Many of the stories are about Paul Toscano, who had founded the Mormon Alliance to document these episodes. So he's a prominent figure. Um, and uh, the archives, uh, the, it talks about how the archives of the church are restricted after Arrington is released. And it goes over the events in dialogue in the early 1980s that we discussed in the previous episode. Mark E. Peterson, elders Mark E. Peterson, Ezra Taft Benson, Boyd K. Packer, and Gordon B. Hinckley, and Dallin A. Jokes are uh, big characters in a lot of these stories. The Committee to Strengthen the Members, also known as the Strengthening of the Church Members Committee, is behind a lot of the supervision, and it's publicly exposed in 1992, a year before this episode, uh, this issue, sorry. 
um, it, which, which was headed by James E. Faust and Russell M. Nelson, who were the two people who were leading the, uh, the strengthening of the members committee. And it revealed that uh, several of those who are being investigated have files on them and that Salt Lake City seemed to be calling local stake presidents and bishops asking and inquiring uh, uh, and demanding, in some cases, inquisitions on these uh, different uh, uh, scholars. Some of the main characters are Paul Toscano, D. Michael Quinn, Levina Fielding Anderson, Linda King Newell. Um, it lists George P. Lee as one of the cases, which is unfortunate because he's convicted of child molestation soon after this. Um, Avram Gileadi's millenarian interpretation of Isaiah is also cited since BYU Bookstore and Deseret Book refused to sell it after some controversy. Uh, we're, uh, well, well, I want to talk a little bit about the right wing and how that focuses uh, That's an uh, important story. as well. Um, Maxine Hanks was a target. Brent Medcalf, David Knowlton, John Silito, and other big Sunstone names are all getting blowback for, Bill, for their Sunstone work. And um, there's a lot of media coverage about these events. LDS intellectuals are speaking out. They're comparing this to McCarthyism. Eugene England's essay compares it to Salem witch trials. Uh, they have a lot to say about me, all of this. I'm just going to jump in quickly. Yeah, two go, things. go, yeah. Well, two things. Number one, I really respect Levina entirely. They're, again, such an authentic soul. And when she says that she prayed and fasted and went to the temple, she did and she continued her participation within her own local ward, even after she was excommunicated. But one of the things I really respect about her, and she says it in quotes after she's talking about why she qualifies for this. And she talks about Vietnam, about priesthood for the blacks, about these other these equality rights. And in each case, I received a clear answer. This is not your cause. Like Levina finds her cause. And I think it's important to also recognize that if you go back through this period of of the late 80s to mid mid to up to this point it is building she writes essay after essay do are we using the proper pronouns within our church are we giving equality to the speakers that are showing up one of the things i really want to point out is well there's two things one is the 1st of june 1980 speaking at a 14 stake fireside Brigham Young University's elder Bruce R. McConkie identifies the seven deadly heresies, including God is progressing in knowledge and is learning new truths, revealed religion and organic evolution that can be harmonized. Of course, that is a direct, that's a direct attack against our founding, our founding editor, Eugene England. And so, so there's that. I want to acknowledge uh, the other thing that she says as she goes through this one scholar after another, this cleansing that happens. And she has this, she has a Linda, she says, Linda Selato sent me a poem that instead captured my feelings precisely during this. Linda's words are, one by one, they throw us from the tower and we spread our wings and fly. I wonder what is the connection, like where is our protection for scholarship within this? I also have to admit, Taylor, somewhat, I have to admit, I see myself in this. I mean, I, 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 my, there, there are not myself as a scholar, much more that, you know, my father was mentored by maybe, uh, in Eldon Tanner, who is cited as saying, when the prophet speaks, it is law. I grew up with this rhetoric. And so to come at this for the first time when I read it, and I've read it two or three times, it was difficult for me. I'll admit it. It's a hard read, but it's a very utterly necessary read. It was tension building. It had to be said. 
And I really support how brave she was in doing this. It's fascinating because her main focus, as she mentions at the outset of the essay, are feminists and intellectuals, especially historians. But as I mentioned before, she's also really interested in conservative people, including what we would now call preppers and apocalypticists like Avram Gileadi, who becomes one of the September 6th, and those that he inspired, like other more radical John Birchers, uh, followers of James Bo Greitz. Do you remember Bo Greitz from the early 90s at all? Yeah, these figures that are fascinating. So they were going all after the super right wing as well, and probably in much higher numbers than the liberals. But um, uh, some of the cases that that uh, 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 Levina mentions are stronger than others. Not all are real historians. Not all are you know feminists, of course. Uh, some of these are um, you know maybe minor dust ups, not really abuse so much. But there's a lot in there that's definitely worth worth uh, wrestling with. Um, so well, who I else is? Bring up, oh, go ahead. You bring up a very important point. This essay is brutal. Like it cuts to the core in a way that, for me, the first time I read it, I was like, "Oh, this is actually aggressive." And I think she was just exhausted. I don't know. I, I'm enjoying her new book that is out, and there's there's a lot of background that's within it. I totally recommend it to everyone, but. But that is a truth telling, but also it tells it in such a way that it it peels back the layers on on the abuse and the censorship that I feel like I am called to action to make sure that scholarship has a, has more protection so that it can ex- explore deeper thought. Yeah, yeah. So who else is at the center of all of this? I want to note that Martha Sontag Bradley, one of the new editors at Dialogue, is a kind of central character in the background a little bit. She was a history professor at BYU when she accepted the editor position. And um, also in 1992, she discussed feminism on a local talk show in Provo. BYU president uh, at the time, Rexy Lee, confronted her about the appearance, and uh, it didn't go very well, I guess. So she resigned teaching at BYU in July 1993, yeah. right after uh, this first issue appeared in print. Um, she started teaching at the University of Utah in 1994, where she is still today, and has won numerous awards, written a ton of books, and held in extremely high esteem. She's now a high-level uh, administrator there. And, uh, uh, you know, again, one of the one of the many sort of casualties of the early 90s at BYU. Um, There are all of these other great essays. Uh, Levina's is not the only one that really are are touching on this, including the book reviews, which go over spiritual abuse scholarship outside of the church. Uh, So this was really a direct assault on church leaders in what they saw as, of course, a response to a 20-year campaign against them, uh, against many young uh, uh, scholars. So, um, yeah, just that that's a fascinating well, story. And, and you're exactly right. I, wanna, I want to second that. This issue is a watermark, both out of its uh, criticism and also out of how it holds many things accountable, but also out of its beauty, just beauty. And I feel like this, you know, if somebody dives into into an issue, this might be the one you 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 kind of also make sure you do not miss in all of this. <laughs> yeah. So 
Focusing back at BYU, I, I want to note, it's a little bit of a side note here, but who else is watching all of this? Well, it's the younger generation yeah. who aren't yet scholars, but especially the BYU students. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes this generation is called the lost generation because scores of young college uh, uh, age and graduate age LDS intellectuals are leaving the church. They had been active on their own front, founding Seventh East Press and a bunch of other uh, magazines and, and unauthorized uh, uh, publications out of BYU. The Student um, Review. I'll the put Student that out Review, there as well. yeah. And among these students is one uh, person that is going to be relevant for us later on, Joanna Brooks, mm-hmm. who eventually <laughs> returns in 2008 after 15 years of, of uh, leaving the church. But we see that what's happening here, speaking, autobi- speaking autobiographically, I was only in high school and then I was on my mission. And by the time my head kind of came up in the late 1990s, it seemed a totally different world than the, what had happened in the, in the early 90s. Uh, and maybe I was naive to all that had happened. And I imagined my own career um, as uh, possible in a way that even just five years before, the people who are just a little bit older than me looked at it and said, no way can I be a scholar and a faithful saint at the same time. Um, so it, it's just fascinating to kind of reflect on on that. Well, and one of the things I want to talk about that's happening, and we can get this in another podcast, but but Gene is still at BYU until 1996, and he is mm-hmm. fostering this young, this younger generation. Both Joanna, also we see a, quite a bit out of BJ Fogg. We see Lance Larson writing poetry and giving a space for these things. And then, of course, eventually Gene is, is forced out of BYU. But I think his mentorship, even though it's quiet, is very profoundly felt and seen and reflected in some of the things that are happening independently. Well, uh, so many fascinating and fantastic professors and Gene being one of them, um, BYU was not a, uh, a good place for them in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, he's, he's, his story we need to tell uh, in uh, more yeah, fuller detail. Yeah. yeah. So what's the fallout here after this issue? Uh, Boyd K. Packer in May 1993 gives his famous speech decrying feminists, intellectual, so-called intellectuals, and the gay and lesbian movement as dangers to the church. Um, Other people were actually quite happy with this particular uh, issue. One of the letters to the editor, thank you for the outstanding spring 1993 issue. I have subscribed to dialogue from issue number one, and the spring 1993 was the most courageous, thought-provoking, and inspirational issues to date. Wow. Yeah. And, 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 and I see lots of letters to the editor that just say, I'm so lonely in this. Thank goodness for dialogue. Yeah. The other big fallout is the September 6th, yes. just a few months after all of this. Uh, September 1993, six LDS intellectuals, historian Michael D. Quinn, uh, feminists Maxine Hanks and Lynn Knabel, uh, Whitesides, uh, Paul Toscano and Avram Gileadi. Uh, and, of course, Levina Fielding Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, Gileadi really is in a different class from these mm-hmm. others. His story is distinct, um, but his plight is previewed in Levina's article as uh, one of the, you know, we can sort of, she sort of saw this coming uh, there, mm-hmm. too. Um, there are others who happen, who, who are excommunicated or forced out of the church after September, it's, you know, sometimes their stories get lost. In early 1994, biblical scholar David Wright is dismissed from BYU for his scholarship. Yep. Um, 
in uh, uh, yeah. So there, there are others that, that their stories are important here. Um, the winter 1993 issue um, includes an essay by Levina Fielding Anderson um, telling about her, ex- talking about her excommunication. She had got, uh, which had happened just that September. Uh, she had gotten together with friends on the night of her excommunication. She didn't go uh, to watch A Man for All Seasons, a classic story about conscience versus religious authority. Uh, and she writes uh, Freedom of Conscience, a personal statement uh, the night before her formal excommunication. Well, and let me just toss out also, she's not the only one that writes about this. Mm. She found out, so her husband, Paul Anderson, who was very much an integral part of, of Mormon architecture and the Mormon Museum of Art, uh, the sorry, BYU Museum of Art, he wrote a letter to the stake president the night before, the night prior. It was a letter that Levina did not find until after his death in 2017. And it's poignant. Oh, I don't know this story at all. I'm well, so excited. This is going to be great. Part, it's part of her foreword in her new book that's coming out. And there again, it's a lovely book. It starts with a scripture out of Moses just, that just says, mercy is all. And it talks about how Paul just says, Levina, Levina is full of devotion. Like Levina loves this entity can you find compassion? Can we come to some sort of dialogue? Can we have a conversation about this? And and the two of them were very, I mean, there's so much union between the two of them. And and there again, you know, she she found herself within the pews every single day, every single week after that. Paul, uh, Paul was kind of, she says that that Paul was sort of saved from being in the bishoprics and other things he served as the word choir director and Sunday school teachers and that sort of thing. But he just says, he just really pleads with the leadership and says, where is your mercy in this? So I think that's an important there again, I am going to turn people towards, uh, have people really check out her, her new book. Cause it's just spectacular. But the it's, pleading for this and the asking for it was, there was a deaf ear turn to them. That's a great place to sort of wrap up uh, Levina's story um, with her new book that was comes came out in spring of 2020 with Signature Books, which kind of uh, lays out her own personal memoir, but is also uh, her, her vision for the church. Um, and also worthy of note is that last year, Levina appealed to have her membership reinstated mm-hmm. and was denied by the first presidency including Russell M. Nelson, who was the head of the uh, Strengthening of the Members Committee and uh, probably oversaw or had some hand in her original excommunication. So these are uh, long-standing grudges, I suppose. she says again later, she's like, she says, do I want to number myself with the saints? Absolutely. But she says, do I feel like I did exactly the right thing? 100%. She, I don't think she has regrets about telling about telling the story that she told. And so I think that's important to note, but it is also incredibly heartbreaking. I want to acknowledge briefly, well, not only that, uh, you know, we have this Von Brody in 47, we have Janice Allred in 78, and there's a long gap. I don't think there's a Sonia Johnson in 79. Sonia Johnson, I'm sorry. Sonia <laughs> Johnson. And then, I mean, there's other people who probably... Uh, lose their membership within the church between them. But intellectually, we don't have a big blip until the 90s. But but I really want to acknowledge it within Mormonism and doctrinally, excommunication is a violent act. It's not like you can't just take the sacrament anymore. You are spiritually orphaned 
from those that are around you. Your ceilings are canceled, all of this stuff. It is really a harsh, harsh situation. And that's important for us to say that pain is, is real. And this was a huge, um, you know, the, the, the wounds created by this took a while to heal. Uh, if they have even healed at all. For many, Absolutely. of course, they haven't. I don't want, I don't want to, to, to minimize that. Um, but we're also been, at a... Well, several have been re- re-baptized. And that's, that's important right. to kind of mention. Uh, Maxine Hanks and... Giliotti, too. Giliotti. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those two. So what was some of the reaction in the early uh, issues here? Um, well, I want to note uh, that the that the dialogue didn't let up. In the fall 1993 <laughs> issue, they also published another uh, uh, essay by Omar Kadar, I think, uh, Kader, mm-hmm. uh, Free Expression, the LDS Church and BYU, or Brigham Young University, which is a pretty brutal analysis of what was going on. And of course, it's just going to get worse over the next few years at, at BYU for, for many scholars there. Um, uh, and one letter writer uh, discusses Levina's uh, excommunication and her, her story there. The impact of her excommunication on others will have very little import. She has, in fact, cut the ties with the very church she claims to believe in, and while doing so, has lost her effectiveness and other more important possibilities. Life isn't fair. So not I, everybody was sympathetic. Letter, that letter hit me so, so just in the face. You know, and our our obligation is to make life fair. Our obligation is to bring justice. Our obligation is to provide space for this type of scholarship. And I mean, that's me and that's a reaction and it's not objective. So but that one, our obligation as Christians is to make life fair. So I, we were, I was asked on Facebook, I sort of put, you know, preview that we were going to be talking about this. And somebody asked, um, what has changed? Why aren't there these conflicts anymore? And I had a lot of reactions. Do you have any, any thoughts on what's changed? I think, uh, I think what's really changed, I do not think, that, I know and believe that the church has not changed in how it treats its intellectuals and its scholarship, I think the interest and the the ability for scholars and for those who question to engage with the church is tired. Like it's just weary. And I think that that we have to see that that the disengagement. We see several letters to the editor where people are saying, "I have separated myself from the church. I'm done." Like this is the point where we see the beginning of the bleed out. And that's that's significant to recognize as well. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a good take that in many ways we're still fighting these same battles. On the other hand, you know, there hasn't been a, a public excommunication of a scholar. No. A, 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 though, you know, one of the interesting things that I think is notable about Maxine, about Levina, about some of the, about Paul, certainly that they weren't just like scholars. They were also actively trying to change and influence the church in a way that church leaders thought was out of bounds. Well, that's Um, significant that you bring up something because my big question going into this is what's the difference between scholarship that might be uncomfortable and activism? Are those two separate issues? And there again, I think there's a certain protection that should be given to scholarship, but, but these, these essays seek to, do two things. They have a duality about them. So, so I think later we do see excommunication, but it's mostly due to activism, not necessarily scholarship. 
that's a really good distinction. It's one that I think, you know, sort of my rough uh, back of the napkin kind of analysis yep. here is that everybody sort of learned what the boundaries were, you know, yep. and, yep. Uh, and, you know, we can fast forward to folks like John DeLynn and Kate Absolutely. Kelly, who, who Sam Young, Absolutely. Sam Young, the, the folks who, um, you know, not, not, not to say that they, they, they weren't necessarily, well, John DeLynn may be in a slightly different category here, mm-hmm. but, but certainly people who were, perceived as doing activist work and, yep. and I think did that, you know, would take on that title themselves. And that's where the church still kind of has a, uh, you know, uh, uh, takes a heavier hand. Whereas I don't know the last time I heard from a historian that got a letter complaining about their work, uh, including those at BYU. I mean, I hear actually quite open and positive things, you know, to look at feminists probably haven't won yet. Uh, you know, their, their battles totally, but historians have these battles are more or less over. I think um, gonna, I don't. I I totally disagree, and I'm sorry. Oh, to say okay. This. Yeah, go ahead. I think we have one coming up that is both a scholar and an activist, and it's and it and the book has come out this week, and it's Joanna Brooks hmm. because she approached this as this as a peer reviewed scholarly book, but man, also she engages with the actual physical action, like the actual physical like um, activism of the Mormon women of color. Hmm. And that's going to be a very interesting thing to watch. Now, of course, with the new guidelines that came back out in February, there is no longer excommunication. There's dismemberment. And that's a lot of mental gymnastics. But I... Disfellowship, not dismemberment. That's that's much worse. Dismemberment is much worse. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and they've changed the verbiage. But, but But the separation is similar. And I kind of have my eye on this. I think we might be swinging the pendulum back into where we're combining scholarship with activism again, mm-hmm. which is kind of dynamic and, and exciting to see how that works. Hmm. That could be interesting to keep an eye on. Yeah. Uh, you know, we wish the best for our dear Absolutely. friend, Joanna. Uh, we're going to be um, doing some, if, depending on when you listen to this, these all might be out already, but we're going to be doing some... Um, uh, some discussion of Joanna's book on on our website and in a, an upcoming issue, and uh, yeah, so that that's a fascinating insight. Let's move on to some of the other issues that come up, and we can kind of get through these a little yeah. bit more rapidly here. But I'd love to get your take on some of them. Um, 1990 is the 100th anniversary of the manifesto ending polygamy, or mm-hmm. at least beginning the end of polygamy. Uh, D. Michael Quinn's research showed how it took a lot longer to actually end it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we start to get some treatments or we get some treatments of uh, Mormon fundamentalism during this time as well, as several news and media reports start to talk about it more openly. Um, and an effort was undertaken even to legalize plural marriage around the 100th anniversary. Um, so we have a bunch of really important articles in uh, the 1990 issues, um, including Martha Sontag Bradley's mm-hmm. the Women of Fundamentalism, Short Creek in 1953. And such an important one. There's another one. Uh, anyway, I, I agree with you. And I think this is such an important issue. Yeah, we start to get the scholarship, you know, and you can look to a number of contemporary scholars who work on this uh, today and, and uh, popular uh, uh, historians like um, uh, Lindsay Hansen Park as well, where uh, our sort of cousins, uh, Mormon cousins in fundamentalism, uh, are become a scholarly interest. And I think that these are some of the first 
essays to really kind of try to tell this history. There are a few others, I think, about some other uh, leaders, but these are the first ones that really kind of kind of. There's one other one I want to bring up, and I yeah. and I'm hoping I can remember exactly which issue it is in, and it is an essay on uh, Mormon polygamists and activism and feminism by uh, uh, Gosh Van Wagnen. I will find it, but it is. Um, it is such an important issue. She wrote an S her thesis was, um, and I need to find it, and I'm sorry that I'm skipping around just a little bit, but, but it's a significant essay and it talks about how the women who were participating in this, in this, uh, in this battle are our first really our big activists. But she is, she is a significant person. She's actually Robert Redford's first wife. Whoa. And, yes. <laughs> And her name, oh gosh, I'm blanking. I'm sorry so much, and I, I will come up with this. But it is so interesting to me because she talks about that these women are acting within their own field of being able to act. You know, like they only had so much that they could say, only so much that they could do within the system of the patriarchy. And she she talks about this combination between suffragettes and uh and and plural marriage people, mm, you know, the, the mm-hmm. polygamists and, and suffragettes. I remember that article and I didn't copy it into this or maybe it's someplace else in the history. I, I put it in my history section, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And there is this perennial debate among Mormon feminist scholarship that looks to 19th century plural marriage as uh, a time when Mormon feminism flourished but yet looks to uh, fundamentalist women as oppressed by the patriarchy. So the same kinds of narratives that non-Mormons would often tell about Mormon women, Mormon women start to tell about fundamentalist women. And uh, so, yeah, that, that scholarship. It is, I found it. It's actually, it's actually in winter of 1991, and it's Lola Van Wagnon. And the, and the essay is called In Their Own Behalf, the politicization of Mormon women and the 1970s franchise. It's Thank very you. good. Yes, I'm the sorry 18, the 1870s franchise. 1870 franchise. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, oh, I knew that one. Thank you so, so much for bringing that one up here specifically. Yeah. It's really wonderful. Yeah. So in the pages of the of the letters to the editor, which we love talking about, there's a lot of back and forth about uh, polygamy, about the, rem- the the historical scholarship on the um, on the manifesto. And, of course, uh, the scholarship on fundamentalism. And because it was a kind of popular topic at the time period and the people were thinking about legalizing fundament, think, legalizing plural marriage during this era, uh, there was a big public debates about it. And um, so anyway, so if you want to kind of get into what 1990s Mormons uh, were thinking about it, these are great essays. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, briefly the Book of Mormon, and then we'll return. Oh, here's where I have the women's issue is next in my outline where I have that. So we'll talk, we can come back to that. But let's talk about the Book of Mormon really fast here. There isn't a ton in this era, but it's uh, a little bit worth noting. The winter 1991 uh, issue has an essay by Neil Chandler, Book of Mormon stories that my teacher kept from me. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what he says. It may be no more a kind of perversity that brings me to admit what I will tell you now, namely that when it comes to the Book of Mormon, that most correct of books whose pedigree we love passionately to debate and whose very namesakes we have all of us become, I stand mostly with Mark Twain. I think it's chloroform in print. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> so it's pretty, it's actually a humorous but serious critique of the Book of Mormon. But he says other things like, this is a book of men, by men, for men, and openly and, op- uh, and openly and conventionally, at least, about men only. Um, yeah. This got a letter, uh, this got him in, a little bit in hot water from the uh, the overseers at the Strengthening of the Members Committee who sent a letter to his bishop and stake president to tell them not to allow him to speak in church anymore. Oh, my. Um, but we see, you know, this is in 91, so it's before everything, but we see the ways that LDS folks are really trying to speak more boldly, and dialogue is becoming the only venue for that, which, again, puts them more and more on this collision course uh, where they want to say even potentially offensive things, not just air the history, you know, here they're, you know, he's really offending people with this essay. Um, I want to note that what's happening in the background, why we're seeing a little less scholarship on the Book of Mormon in this time period is because of the rise of FARMS, the Foundation of Ancient Research in Mormon Studies, which had a special backer in the 1980s uh, from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. Um, these uh, these scholars were positioning themselves as a faithful alternative and apologists uh, who were opposing the new Mormon historians, and they had some fair criticisms of that movement. Uh, this is a you know there's a real legitimate intellectual debate, even though things got pretty rancorous and there were some pretty tough personalities um, uh, that represented the apologists. Uh, they were also making the Book of Mormon historicity a key area of research based around John L. Sorensen's 1984 book uh, that argued for a limited geography hypothesis that located the events of the Book of Mormon in a small area of Central America. It was a challenge to the hemispheric model that most members held, and uh, it challenged, of course, the new Mormon historians who were increasingly talking about the Book of Mormon's 19th century features. I want to call attention then to Brentley Metcalf's 1993, fall of 1993 article, Apologetic and Critical Assumptions of Book of Mormon Historicity, that really kind of lays out what the stakes were in this debate. And it's a good kind of uh, temperature taker of what was going on uh, through uh, the 1980s, through the previous decade up until uh, the fall of 1993. Okay, let's transition to the various women's issues that are um, published during this era. Um, we have a fall and winter 1990 issue, which are, uh, issues, which are mostly dedicated to this topic. And then summer 1994 blockbuster yes. on, uh, on these topics. Um, here's what they say in 1990. A woman's issue in 1990. So funny coming back to these things. <laughs> Isn't it great? <laughs> Where they think like history is over. We've solved these problems. Doesn't that smack of tokenism, of division rather than oh. unity, of sexism rather than sexual equality? Perhaps it would if women's voices hadn't been integral and almost proportionate in dialogue for more than 20 years now. Perhaps if that landmark pink issue of 1971 and the red one in 1981 hadn't mattered to so much to both men and women. <laughs> That's two out of how many issues? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. We, and and there's a couple of things. You know, one of the things I really want to shout out on this one, it isn't overt that they decide to do. I mean, it's not if there isn't a special editor uh, on this one, but I'm super pleased that all of the essays, every single one of them is by a woman. There are a couple of reviews and um, there's some things that really come out in this issue that I think aren't necessarily high profile, but they change women's lives. Hmm. Hmm. And what I noticed, let me just say, and I'll, I'll just jump into this uh, just quickly. Um, 
as a woman, and I read this, and there again, I'm going back to that review I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, where we're talking about the repression and the silence and the obedience to speak against abuse. And two or three of the essays that are in this that are very standout essays to me are speaking out on domestic violence by Anne Castleton. We see letters to the editor later where other women anonymously write in and say, I am, I was Anne Anne Castleton. This is my story. They don't use their name, but the fact that she is so upfront and honest about her experience with abuse in, in a domestic setting gives other women the wherewithal to claim their own space. The other one is Linda Silito, which is, it's really well written. It's rescue from home, some ins and outs. And it's about her sister and how her sister leaves a very abusive patriarchal uh, marriage as a young married woman. And I think that's a big shout out in this is that we are finally talking about the domestic abuse, the sexual abuse, the, the patriarchal abuse that is happening within Mormonism. So I want to acknowledge that. Uh, there are not all, those were outstanding to me as well. And of course, we've got others that are working on LDS women's history. We have more feminist theology that's coming out, including the one that we already mentioned by Levina, um, the grammar of inequality. Yep. And, um, and uh, of course, the Lola Van Wagenen article that you yep. had, uh, that you had brought our attention to as well. I think that that Van Wagenen article is also relevant in 2020 because it's the anniversary of the national franchise of women. Absolutely. And there are eventual, there are things that are going on now. So again, people might be interested in looking back on telling that Utah history, the Mormon women's history about the franchise that uh, we've got some great people working on. What's it called? Better Days 2020 Better Days or something? 2020. Yeah. Thank you. It's very significant. And there's a lot to be, um, there's a lot to be fleshed out in the activism that happened then. One of the things that Lola Van Wagen brings up is that some of what she perceives as the hesitation to be super honest about the situation of women uh, within, within the system of patriarchy is the fact that they are coming off the heels of Emma Smith being painted as very much a pariah and as a villain to Mormonism. So they are careful about the words that they choose hmm. and they choose their activism within a system, um, a working system. And it shows, it shows the pressure, I believe. So the summer 94 issue was another special issue on uh, women's topics. And I was blown away that yeah. so many amazing articles were in this one. In my estimation, this is also one of the most important issues ever published. And I have read many of these independently. And it wasn't until going back that I realized they all came out in the same issue. It was they so all came incredible. Out in the same issue. So uh, I'll list the titles and authors here. Uh, some of them may be familiar, some of them not. But we've got Janice Allred's Toward a Mormon Theology of God the Mother, which is a classic of, uh, of Mormon feminist theology of, of Heavenly Mother. We have Martha Sontag Bradley, Seizing Sacred Space, Women's Engagement in Early Mormonism, more of that sort of discussion of uh, how early Mormon women were um, uh, had a different level of power and access to power than did contemporary Mormon women in the 1990s. Uh, David Hall's Anxiously Engaged, Amy Brown Lyman and Relief Society Charity Work, 1917-45, also tells a story of how in the early 1900s, Mormon women had a very different profile than they did in the 1990s. Lynn Matthews Anderson, Toward a Feminist Interpretation of Latter-day Saint Scripture. This is one of my favorite articles of all 
time. Cannot recommend it enough. I cite it all the time. I think it's really a foundational piece. So I, I encourage people to take a look at it. And Margaret Toscano's, if Mormon women have had the priesthood since 1843, why aren't they using it? That's a follow-up to an essay in um, uh, Maxine Hanks's uh, Women in Authority, which was making the argument that, um, that we now know uh, more or less is, is accurate, that the Relief Society minutes recorded that uh, Joseph Smith handed the keys of the priesthood to the Relief Society uh, there are more recent studies that reinterpret exactly what that means and tell a, tell a deeper histor- history of that, including um, Jonathan Stapley's uh, 2019 book, which won the Mormon History Association's Best Book of the Year, the title Power from on High. There we go. Um, and maybe Ben Park also t- touches on that in Kingdom of Nauvoo when he yes. talks about the formation of the Relief Society and that maybe it backfired on Joseph a bit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, excellent. Yeah. His, his really tells the story of what's going on and the gender politics of exactly. Nauvoo in a way that had not been told yet. So I highly recommend it, that, that to people as well. Uh, we've got articles on Juanita Brooks and Fawn Brody, sociology of LDS women in this issue. It's really jam packed with fantastic material. Um, anything else you want to say about these yeah, uh, uh, 90s and 1994 you know, issues? It's a real yeah. marathon. This period from 90 to 94, the descent, the, 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 the longing, the, the courage, it's a marathon to make it to 94. But if you make it through these issues to 94, the Janice Allred essay is full of compassion. Of course, it is about it is about uh, this almost the, it is about the physical embodiment of a real heaven, heavenly mother that there is equality, and and we see this in other essays that are leading up to it. But it is worth the journey, and I was surprised. I was ready to. I was kind of fortified to kind of dive into another essay that might have been a little bit antagonistic, but it's not. It's full of love and compassion. And I want to point out about there again, the character of Janice, she was excommunicated over this essay. She continued to go to church and attend her, her ward. And, and the word is, and I know that this is, uh, I've been told several times that people in her local ward do not know they're, they're young enough and they've come back around again. She's just sister Allred. They don't know that she's been excommunicated. <laughs> so I, wow. there again, as we speak to the scholarship, and activism, I also want to really stress that this is Christian compassion in many ways. These these saints of Trevor Salvi and Levina Fielding Anderson and uh, you know Janice Allred, they are they are they're here to serve each you know the the body of the saints, and I think that's important to sort of to kind of bring up, but. But there again, I I was so pleasant. I mean, as much as I was like, oh, can I handle this? Is it going to be hard? No, it's full of compassion. And I think this issue has a lot of uh, that offers in terms of safe haven and sanctuary for those who think uh, outside of the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I love that essay. It's a constructive uh, theological and hermeneutical piece. And yeah, I, I have read it so many times and, and cited it so many times. I yeah, it's in my area of, of, yes. of specialty, and so I don't know. I'm just drawn to it, but it's um, it's it always speaks to me. Let's end on sex. There are a number I'm of great. So glad, <laughs> because I have one that I love. 
<laughs> there are a number of great uh, articles here. Kathleen Lindquist's uh, Sexual Hegemony and Mormon Women Seeing Ourselves in the Bambara Mirror, uh, which is about a trip that she and other Mormon women were taking to Africa to work on um, uh, women's issues there. And and uh, uh, sex became an interesting topic of conversation, a comparative uh, uh, essay, reflective essay there. Um, we have Bob Reese's Winter 1991, Bearing Our Crosses Gracefully, Sex and the Single Mormon. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, this was uh, one that was a sort of attempting to deal with the increasing problem of non-married people. We've got single wards have taken off. I forget exactly when they start, but they're becoming jam-packed and people are getting married later and later. And all of a sudden there's this crisis of what do we do with all these uh, adults who can't have sex with each other? Um, one essay from a singles ward bishop in the fall of 1992. I'm uh, sorry, one letter about this essay from a singles ward bishop in fall of 1992 says uh, of Bob Reese's, this splendid essay treated sexual intimacy in a dignified manner that stressed the positive aspects of sexuality while actively reinforcing essentially negative, the, the essentially negative mandates of thou shalt not commit adultery and fornication. There was this tension that was running through Mormons in the history of sexuality during this period of wanting to embrace this positive view of sexuality and also uh, the very sort of strict rules around it that were creating a lot of um, tension um, uh, around sexuality in, uh, uh, in married couples, at least. So I write a little bit about this in an essay that I just uh, uh, published in the Rutledge Handbook of Mormonism and Gender about the history of the transitions of sexuality in, in Mormonism. And I just found these essays to be sort of really capture what the tensions were in the 1990s. I'm going to jump in, Taylor, a little bit. And one of the things that really struck me in this, of course, he talks about an openly gay man in this, but also one of the things I, in, I liked, he has a new different definition for for morality we're talking about 1992 it is we are still in this period of or coming out of this i mean we're in the time of hiv and aids and he says the moral issue here is that you use protection and i get that your church tells you not to but morally it is important for you if you know he's not necessarily saying go out and explore whatever but i enjoy the fact that he's actually speaking to a morality that has to do with taking care of the the other person outside of themselves one of the one of the ways that i like to think about this is really expressed in another uh, letter from fall of 1992 the central question is this what is it that makes sexual intimacy good or holy in one context and sinful in another and what does marriage have to say, or what does ma- what does marriage have that makes such a difference? Surely the morality mm-hmm. of an act depends not solely on a person's marital status, but also on another care on other characteristics of the relationship. So we start to get here the beginnings of an attempt to articulate a sexual ethics as opposed to sin versus not sin, where if you're married it's okay and anything goes versus uh, versus a kind of another set of standards that should apply in sexual. And this is certainly not taken off at all, but uh, as a mainstream Mormon view, um, most uh, Latter-day Saints, of course, follow the church's uh, uh, teachings on this. But 
it is an interesting kind of window into the debates that people are starting to have, which is about 20 years after other Christians have already been having these pretty robustly. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. I, I'm going to counter you slightly and just jump to my favorite essay during this time. I'm yeah. just going to say it. It's in spring of 1992, and it's the Rommel Prize. Yes. And they shall be of be one flesh, sexuality and contemporary Mormonism. And he goes into this. Okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to go there. This may be the first Mormon scholarship essay that is published that mentions the word clitoris. I will mm-hmm. just say that. <laughs> but he points out that um, there's some really important things where Kimball and other people say, what happens in a marital bed is not, it's, I mean, what happens behind the bedroom door, it is not just your business. It is our business as well. And he goes and he's so healthy about sexuality in this for one of the most, the first times where he gives permission specifically to women to enjoy this, this, this kind of, this whole situation and act that I haven't seen in print prior to this. And it, I think it's important to really just sort of just really honor this essay just for a minute. I 100% agree. I think that this is a really great essay. It's republished in a couple of other uh, books uh, later on. Uh, but it does start to articulate that. And the way that I put it, I, I mentioned I just wrote on the history of LDS sexuality a little bit. And the way that I put it is that there's a sexual revolution in the church from the 1970s up until the 1990s. And this essay really expresses that where Latter-day Saints are starting to think about sex as non-procreational ways and exactly. starting to think it, uh, in, in about a set of relationships and relations as opposed to procreation. And um, that was a huge transition and the church hadn't fully caught up to what was happening on the ground here, or at least as, as it was following popular culture. Um, you know, this is also, it's also interesting to note this essay, I think, did you say it was 91 or 92? I, I forget. This is spring 1992. And 92. it's just the best essay. Like so, every, I hung on every word and I'm sorry. <laughs> we're also about two years before pornography and the internet. Here. That's true. No, <laughs> and that is things true. are about to change again, quite radically, I think, um, uh, as we enter that era. So anyway. No, that's uh, super important to acknowledge. Yeah. But, you know, what's interesting to me, and I am going to just uh, a little bit bring this up because one of the things I get to enjoy is that I have actual paper copies of the journal. And I mm-hmm. have I have a copy by somebody who is cited in this essay. Her name is Shirley Paxman. And she wrote the essay. She wrote the book review yes. in 1976. And I am telling you, you guys, the marginalia in this essay, I'm going to scan it because she just goes on and on. She underlines everything. She's like, she's, and I, she's like, this is sick, sick, sick. This is awful. This is wonderful. Of course, this is the point. And finally, so from 76 to 80 to, to 92, she's waiting for this. And, and I think that, and there again, I would not bring it up except for that. She is specifically cited as being one of the people who bring this to our attention, that mm-hmm. all of the all of the how to parent books, all of the how to make sure your children are are wholesome and pure, are so repressive in nature that she's like, where is where is the real reality 
a reunion between a man and a woman. And she just is, she so enjoys this essay that a little bit, I just think that I am lucky that I get to see <laughs> That's a great callback to, I think I want to say it's episode yes. two, uh, where we discussed the second uh, sex issue in dialogue. I think that that's when that was, but, but yeah, it's fascinating again to see these are conversations that are happening over these decades and the same people are involved. I love that you have that, uh, that her own personal copy of it is uh, great. Well, and I feel slightly moved by the spirit to say that maybe it's time for the dialogue does another sex issue. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe we'll get there. Maybe we'll get there. Encourage submissions for sure. Absolutely. Um, The last thing to mention about sex is the fall 1992 uh, Stephen Sainsbury essay, AIDS, the 20th century leprosy. The only one published that that uh, well, we mentioned Bob Reese's one, but the only one published explicitly on this topic after nearly a decade of the uh, AIDS crisis in the United States. Um, we have, of course, Carolyn Pearson's No More Goodbyes, a national bestseller that uh, confronts the intersection of Mormonism and AIDS. But um, it, I, I was a little bit surprised how little discussion mm-hmm. there was um, in in the pages. But you know, it's just yeah, I don't know why, but. I think that's one, Taylor, that, that's worth revisiting and maybe by a second generation of those that have been lost. Mm-hmm. Just a thought. I believe that there is some interesting scholarship. Um, Seth, uh, what's Seth's last name? It's on the tip of my tongue, uh, who's writing about AIDS in Utah that's going to uh, that's gonna maybe um, uh, tell this history a little bit more. But um, anyway, some, something to keep in mind. I have it in my notes and I can't find it right now, but... Yes. Any other um, any other final comments on this was, again, such a power packed set of uh, of issues here. So many important ones and such big things going on for the journal and for the church. Um, That was all I had to say. Have you got anything else you wanted to highlight? The only thing is, is it's very obvious that there are multiple layers of culture within our faith and our and our 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 practice that are coming forward and 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 it's it's very much a transition time and i honor the work that these scholars have done i i what i really came away with i was compelled to see how i could give more protection to scholarship that makes sure that it could write truth and even be wrong occasionally and that's that's important to me you know and that's the thing I want to speak to, and, and, and different, it's different bait for different fishes. People will understand different aspects of this period, but I want to really speak to the authenticity of the sacrifice made by the honest scholarship that happened during this period. And if I can be part of protecting scholarship in the future, I mean, this is life altering the consequences and there might be consequences in the future, but I really was won over by the fact that we do have to provide sanctuary as a journal for scholarship. Just an incredible amount of gratitude for the sacrifices of all those who came before. Andy, I really had a great time discussing all of these issues with you. Thank you so, so much. We'll talk to you next time. Dialogue.